This is Prevent Defense, the podcast. What's going on, everybody? This is the Prevent Defense podcast. I am Elliot Shore Parks, along with the one and only Brian Baldinger. And the pod is, of course, brought to you by Radio.com Sports. You can get on all your different podcast apps in the Radio.com Sports app. So, Baldy, a lot of good games this week. You're going down to Green Bay. I'm unfortunately going to Washington, probably probably my least favorite stadium uh, in the NFL. Although the the Redskins are playing better now, but the stadium itself, um, not not great. So I'm not super excited to go there. Meanwhile, you'll be at maybe one of the best stadiums in the NFL in uh, Lambeau Field. How many times have you been to Lambeau? Well, I played there a bunch. Um, right. In fact, I caught my only pass uh, in the NFL. I caught a pass one time in uh, 1988. Uh, up at Lambeau Field for 37 yards. We used to run the wishbone when we would get a fourth quarter lead under Ron Meyer with Eric Dickerson and Albert Bentley. We had a wishbone quarterback, and I'd go from guard to tight end. And I said, look, mm-hmm. I'll go block the edge. I'll play your tight end in this wishbone. But you got to put a pass in for me. I mean, you got to make it worth my while here. So they did. They actually called it coming off the end zone and caught my only pass. But I've been up there a bunch as a player and a broadcaster. Did a lot of games there at Fox when Brett Favre was there. Uh, it's been a little while. It's probably been a couple of years since I've been there, but um, I've been up there for training camps. I was there on a Friday night once in summer, and the Packers always have a fan appreciation day. It's an intra-squad scrimmage, and I did a uh, NFL Network um, show up there uh, with Charles Davis one time in front of a packed house. I mean, there must have been seventy thousand people. They tailgated like it was a yep. normal game. You just you just got reminded how unique and different Green Bay is than any other place. Do you remember the play call by chance of the play where you caught your pass? I think it was just fake Baldy Wright. I mean, I think it was something just basically <laughs> that simple. Delay and then go out and, you know, got caught the pass and got tackled by the fastest player on the Packers. So I, I put that under my credit. But, I mean, I, I feel like I still lead the league in yards per reception in the 100-yard history of this game with 37 yards of catch. There you go. The Eagles could certainly use you at this point. Um, but you get a good game. Bears at Packers. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Bears certainly have turned things around. Trubisky maybe saving his job there in Chicago. But wanted to start with not not an X's and O's thing. The Patriots. They find themselves once again in the middle of a scandal. For those that might not know the details at this point, it appears what happened is they sent scouts and a film crew to Cincinnati because they play the Bengals this upcoming weekend. So they sent them last weekend, as most teams do. Every week I'm in Philadelphia, you see representatives for three or four teams in the press box. That's where they put these guys. So the scouts are in the press box. A video camera is there, and they're videotaping something. Like, I mean, there's been reports as to what it was. There's a report, I believe, from The Athletic that it was eight minutes of the Bengals' sideline. Um, The Patriots are saying they were basically doing a video piece on the scouts and the things they do. Um, I believe that those type of things get done. The Eagles do a lot of those with their website in terms of behind the scenes stuff, videotaping scouts, GMs, head coaches, all that stuff. But just another example here where it appears that they're bending the rules to some degree. The NFL says they're looking into it. Baldy, what's your take on this? Well, you know, we only know one side right now. We know what has come out. We, I mean, I know a lot of guys that work for the Patriots uh, on the television side. And I do, I do believe Bill Belichick when he says he doesn't really have anything to do with it, but in some ways he does have everything to do with it. 
Yeah. Because anybody that's been to Foxborough and anybody that's been to Gillette Stadium, anybody that's been around that team knows how off limits everything is. Because it all starts with Belichick. And it filters all the way down to their basement to where their whole television crew and all the guys, I know all the guys that work down there, um, all their orders or marching orders that come from the top. Now, I can imagine that there's a scenario where they're taping this behind the scenes piece. And if you're if you're talking to scouts and what scouts are looking at at a game, I can envision scouts saying we're looking at personnel. We're looking at personnel groupings of the Cincinnati Bengals, what they do on third down. And if you were looking at it through a scout's eyes, you would look at the field and the film would and the in the what you're capturing is what the scouts are looking at. So it could be shuttling players on and off, goal line situation, um, you know, fourth down situation, uh, a punt situation, who's coming on, who's coming off the field. If you wanted to do it accurately, you couldn't really shoot it without looking at the, the Bengals. Now, the question is. Are the Patriots and their coaching staff looking at any of this film or were they going to look at any of this film as they prepare for this week's game? And then you're getting not necessarily an unfair advantage because your scouts are already doing this. But mm -hmm. now you have video to support it for Bill Belichick. And I don't believe anybody can glean more from video than Bill Belichick. He's proven it over 20 years. So I think there's a line that has been crossed. Um, the Bengals did credential or Cleveland did credential. Uh, this game was at in Cleveland, the game that they were shooting. So the Cleveland yeah. Browns did credential the Patriots to come in here and do that. Are they complicit? Well, they let the film crew in there to do what they were doing for the show. So then I think a lot will come out in the investigation. I, I do believe Belichick in his few seconds of sound bites talking about it. But it all does start with him. And so if it does start with him, everything is controlled by him. Um, I, I'm anxious to see where the investigation goes right now. But I can see how if you're truly filming this piece, and I do think it's ironic that they're getting ready to play the Bengals when they yeah. are shooting the piece behind the scenes for the Bengals. I mean, there is – is that just irony? Is that just coincidence? I mean, nobody that has looked at the history – of what the Patriots have done, believe this is just a coincidence that they're shooting Bengals and, and Browns as they get ready to play the Bengals. I mean, there's just too much history there to say that this is just a coincidence. Yeah. And I mean, it, you know, I, I'm torn because it's hard to give the Patriots the benefit of the doubt. And it really is such a shame that this keeps happening because on, on one hand, like Belichick is a good enough head coach, I believe that he doesn't need to do these things to win. Like, I don't believe Belichick's resume and career has taken place because he cheats, right? I think there's been times where he certainly has fudged the rules. He, you know, I, I read a, bi a biography of him recently. And, you know, when he was younger, he used to go through all the, uh, like, the the different um, radio booths and coaches booths and stuff and see if people, things were left in the trash, right? Like, so I think he's always just kind of looked for that extra advantage, now, with this, I do believe, like you said, is there a way that, yes, they were filming something for the website, and ultimately, it all fun falls under Belichick. Like, the Eagles, they have a video department that does a great job making all types of videos, but ultimately, everything that's put out goes through the PR department, which also is looked at by coaches. So nothing gets put out that Howie or Doug is not really comfortable with them seeing. So 
on one hand, yes, this is on the this is on the video department. Um, and then you know there was a report that the guy offered to erase it on the spot. Like that's kind of suspicious. Um, but then every time I want to try to give him the benefit of the doubt, I think back to when they were dealing with the whole deflate deflate gate scandal. They said that the guy's nickname was the deflator because he lost a lot of weight. Like when you when you use excuses like that that are just so silly, it's hard for me to then give you the benefit of the doubt. And as you said, the fact that they're doing this piece as they're about to play the Bengals, like that's pretty suspect. The fact that they're videotaping only the sideline for eight minutes, um, I think that's suspect. So my thing is, and the fact that it's also video, right? Like this isn't a new type of cheating. Like this is probably the thing they're known most for, which is the, the you know, obviously Spygate, right? So it, the NFL is now put into place where I don't know what else you do. I mean, you you find Belichick five hundred thousand dollars last time. You took away a first round pick. If it's found out that this was being done in in a cheating manner, like what's the next step for them to do to the Patriots? Because if they're cheating again in the same manner they did before, pretty close to the same manner, that's such a slap in the face to Goodell, who already has the perception that he's kind of Robert Kraft's puppet in a way. So what do you think the NFL's next move is if they were to find out? I mean, how much more can you really punish them? Well, um, first round picks are pretty, they're pretty valuable. It's significant. The money, is, the money to me doesn't, is meaningless. I mean, between Belichick, Bob Crafts, the Patriots, I mean, they just write a check. I mean, it's no big right. deal. But the draft picks, are pretty significant. Now, the next step, the next step is to take Belichick off the sidelines, right? Uh, a suspension, like you would suspend a player for behavior. I mean, that's the next step. Now, you take Belichick off the sideline in the game, I think that makes a huge difference. And if it happened in one of these games, I mean, if it would happen this year, now I'm getting way ahead of myself here, but if, if, yeah. if it did happen this year, like they play the Bills, I mean, that you know, Bills come to New England. It can affect the seeding in the AFC. Um, the Patriots have been getting these number one seeds or number two seeds forever. Uh, it certainly plays their advantage. I mean, if they would lose a game with Belichick down on the sideline against the Bills or whomever, or a playoff game, um, you know, their their chances of success go down dramatically without his presence and his ability to coach. So, I mean, I, if you're saying, like, if you want to really send the message, what's the bigger message? And the most important message for anybody, player, coach, or owner, whatever, than to take them, take the game away from them. And I'm sure that's the only thing that could placate a public that is all rolling their eyes at this whole thing right now. So Belichick, arguably the best head coach of all time. I mean, he's certainly one or two or maybe three, but he's certainly in that discussion. My question to you is, if this is something where the NFL catches them, and again, we're getting ahead of ourselves, right? This They could do an investigation. It could be nothing. But certainly the uh, circumstances are suspicious. If it does get to the point where he's suspended or they, they do something like that, can his reputation take another one of these? I mean, this isn't the first time. Like, I was thinking back to when they suspended Sean Payton, right? And he's kind of really moved past that. I mean, no one really brings it up when you talk about him anymore. Uh, and I know that was more of a Greg Williams type thing, but Sean Payton was the head coach. If Belichick is suspended for, let's say, the rest of the season or two games, whatever they decide to do, has it gotten to the point then where his reputation, like he can't get past it? Is he only one more strike away from this being in the first two sentences of when you talk about Belichick's career? 
I, I personally, I hope not. I mm-hmm. hope not because I think he's just been that good. But these, but and you'd hate to see it tarnished. It just doesn't feel right to, like you said, he doesn't need to do any of these things. But yeah. if they, if there is a pattern, and clearly there's a pattern here, um, then it is going to tarnish it. It just it, it, people because that's what happens in today's world, Elliot, is that when there's a pattern of behavior for, let's just say, Vontez Perfect, okay, if there's a pattern of behavior, it travels. It doesn't mm-hmm. just get erased. Now, you say Sean Payton, that was one one incident. They dealt with it. The league dealt with it. And there hasn't been a recurring thing. So it does go away. But if it every couple of years or every once in a while, whatever, this happens, this stuff in today's world, it all travels with you and it sticks to you and it can't really very much unstick. It's just part of today's world, whether you're in politics or business or you're cheating on Wall Street or whatever it is, those things travel with you right or wrong. It's just the way the world works right now. And you'll see if something bad happens out of this investigation, Elliot, you can bet that all of the shows, ESPN, they'll they'll put the, the resume up there of all the different uh, offenses that they've been yep. guilty of. And that's just the way the world is. Yeah, but I will say that if they if they get out of this unscathed, if it, you know there's an investigation and they're just fined or something, or they're found that there's really no wrongdoing, like the Patriots season, it's clearly been good, right? I mean, they're, they're going to be one of the top, top seeds in the AFC. They might get home field advantage. But you've seen in the past where these things happen, Belichick uses them as motivation. I mean, he'll use a quote from a practice squad guy from an upcoming game. So clearly, if people once again are saying they're cheaters and those things, I do wonder in a sick way if this becomes kind of a spark for their season or something Belichick can use moving forward. But we'll have to wait and see what the investigation says. Baldy, I want to get into what's going on in Cleveland, some more drama there, of course, and what's been an absolute train wreck of the season, if we're being honest. But before we get into that, I got to tell you, as I always do each week, I want to tell you about Cafe Altura's COO, Dylan Miskowitz, and how they experienced challenging and how, how hard it can be and how much trouble they were having searching for a director of coffee for his organic coffee company. But then what did he do? He switched to ZipRecruiter and saw an immediate difference. And you can too by signing up for free at ZipRecruiter.com enter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, Baldy. It finds them for you. And this technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job so you can get qualified candidates faster. In fact, after posting his job to ZipRecruiter, Dylan said he was amazed by how quickly great candidates were applying and found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. ZipRecruiter, as you know, Baldy, it's the smartest way to hire, and you can see why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes when you try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash enter. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash enter, E-N-T-E-R, ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And Baldy, as I was saying, Cleveland right now, big mess. So Jay Glazer of Fox Sports comes out this week and says Odell's been telling people around the league he wants out of uh, out of Cleveland. And on one hand, I'm surprised by that because I remember 
you know, he's obviously great friends with Jarvis Landry. I remember watching your piece with Jarvis Landry for NFL Network uh, this past offseason. Like you would, and then Baker, it seems like he would be happy there. But obviously, Freddie Kitchens has not done a good job. The team is not doing well. Um, what's your opinion on Odell? Do you think he gets moved? And uh, do you think that he should wait wait there? Or do, you, or do you not blame him for maybe wanting out? Well, here's the thing. I, I, I feel like I know a good side to Odell. And I was saying, I mean, he's a multifaceted guy. There's things that you right. could say about him that are are negative, and, and he's earned them. And then there's some things like he's never – one in the NFL. He's never, he's never won. I mean, one year in New, in New York, they, they got bounced out of the playoffs in the first round. They had a good year, but one year, I mean, he's never, never won. That's all they did at LSU was win. So he doesn't even know what it's like to be playing a meaningful game in December, much less even play in January. And part of them, that's all he wants. But also, I don't know if he's 27 or 28 right now. He's one of those two ages, Elliot. He's going to be, and he's dealing right now with, uh, you know, with a sports hernia. So, you know, he's he's been injured a lot. I mean, starting his rookie year with a hamstring injury, he missed all the training camp. And th- this injury history now is real, and it travels with him. And so now you're getting to that age of 27, 28, where you're supposed to be in your very peak of your prime. And there's not a meaningful game in sight for the Cleveland Browns. And so part of him is like, ah, can I just go someplace and just get on a winning team? Just see what that's like. Just feel good after a Sunday rather than always be in the spotlight about something negative, which in large, some of it is fault, but some of it is just the team that he's on. Yep. And so I think he's looking at this organization. And he's looking at this mess that is the Cleveland Browns. And he's saying, look, I'm in my prime. I've never won. I wonder what that's like to be a Pittsburgh Steeler, uh, you know, to be a Seattle Seahawk. To be a New Orleans Saint, be Michael Thomas in New Orleans. What's that like to be playing for playoff seating right now every year? Like I, He doesn't know what that's like. And a part mm-hmm. of me says that's what he wants. He wants to go to a place that truly has a chance. And I don't think it's a knock on Baker or, or Jarvis or anybody. But I don't think he feels like this is what winning football looks like, feels like, and supposed to be like. So I don't think it's a knock on Jarvis. And honestly, I don't even think it's a knock on Cleveland itself. Like, I don't think Odell hates playing for that franchise. I mean, the franchise has problems. But I'd imagine Odell seems like a guy that with the fans there, he would be into the crowd when they're doing well. Now, the issue is they're not. I'm not so sure it's not a knock on Baker. I wonder if going to Cleveland, you know, you watch Baker from afar. His rookie year, he played really well. Probably hasn't played as well this year. And there's a lot of distractions that come with Baker. I wonder just if he kind of is still feeling the vibe of being there with Baker as his quarterback. If I'm Odell, I'm doing everything I can to get to San Francisco. Uh, He makes the complete sense there. They have Emmanuel Sanders now, and I believe he's a free agent, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's back next year. But outside of just that, getting Odell in Shanahan's offense with the way he gets his guys open in space and on the move, Odell would be the best receiver in the NFL in that offense if he was healthy. With Garoppolo. So if you're Odell, now not everything went perfectly in New York, and I don't know everything that went on behind the scenes, but it does not appear Odell asked to be traded to Cleveland or asked to be traded from New York. I mean, he didn't seem overly happy. So this narrative that, oh, Odell once traded again, Odell didn't ask to get traded to Cleveland. 
Now, he signed the extension with New York, so he, in some ways, signed away his right to hit, to hit free agency. But if I'm Odell, I would try to get out of Cleveland, ultimately. I don't think that's a winning franchise. I don't think he's going to win there. And to your point, I think a lot of Odell's stuff gets misinterpreted as, as being a bad guy, quote-unquote, when he really just does want to win. And I think he would be a slam-dunk, like, Pro Bowl elite guy in San Francisco. I agree. I mean, just looking, Kyle Shanahan is just, he's just different. He, I mean, there's, there's elite, you know, traders on Wall Street, Elliot. There's elite sports writers. Um, you know, there's elite coaches in all level. I mean, you know, Popovich in San Antonio was an elite coach um, running an elite program. Kyle Shanahan is an elite coach. Um, Sanders has helped that team out tremendously. But to watch that team week in, week out with a young guy like Jimmy Garoppolo, you know, minus a fullback, minus their tackles, minus, I mean, it didn't make a difference. I mean, they went to New Orleans and they put on a show, like a real show. Any receiver in this league would love to be a part of that. Ask Julio Jones if he'd like to get reacquainted. Ask Matt Ryan if he'd like to be reacquainted with Kyle Shanahan. Ask any of those receivers, Nate Burleson or, you know, all the guys that were in Cleveland with them. Ask them if they would like to be a part of that offense. Because to your point, Elliot, that guy can game plan against anybody. And he proved it against an elite defense on the road where it was it was the, the show in the NFL this season. So, and there was strong rumors about him going there and I don't know, compensation. And I and I and that the point you make about the New York Giants, I mean, his point was look, you signed me to the highest contract for a wide receiver in the league and then you have no idea how to use me and they didn't yep. they didn't have any idea how to use him and he's and odell is a smart guy he's street smart and he's football smart so he sees what's going on around this business and if you're in your prime and you don't know how many great years you might have left and in this league where it's getting more and more like the nba if you want to get out you can almost get out and that's kind of how you have to do it. It may look ugly or behind the scenes, and there's leaks here and there about who he's talked to. I mean, it's going to be like the NBA, where players are going to pick and choose teams to some degree. And you're going to see the Kyle Shanahan's and Sean Payton, some of these guys that are just different play callers. There's going to be players that want to go play for them. Now, if I'm Cleveland, I don't know if I would trade Odell for two reasons. One, I mean, if you open it up for bidding, maybe you, you do get a nice return. If I'm San Francisco, I'm definitely offering a first-round pickup for him. But from the Browns' perspective, if you trade away Odell, I feel like that's a, a real hit on the brand. And I'm not in Cleveland. I don't know everything about what's going on behind the scenes. But trading Odell would kind of be an admission like, look, we brought in this elite star. We brought in this guy. And after a year, he's gone. Like, I think that would be a bad look for the franchise. Not that that's... Not that they're new to taking bad looks. Uh, be bad look for Freddie Kitchens. And I think it would be a real hit to the fan base. So if I'm the Browns, I'm certainly not trading him unless it gets to the point where he's demanding it. It's a you know big sideshow and you're getting good offers. But I'm doing everything I can if I'm the Browns to hold on to him. But let's get into that 49ers Saints game because I think that's a preview of the NFC Championship game. That was one of the best games of the year, if not the best game of the year. You were down there in New Orleans. We talked on the last pod about how crazy that atmosphere can be. I can only imagine what it was like down there up until the end where they lost. But just what were your big takeaways from that game? Well, 
two things. One, Elliot, you were in New Orleans last year for Philadelphia, New Orleans. And you remember yep. that atmosphere, whether you're down the field before the game or just in the building. You remember what that was like. It felt big, about as yeah. big as you can feel. And that's a lot like it was on Sunday. I mean, first of all, almost the entire teams were out there, I mean, warming up. It, I, I've never seen so many players warming up before a game, um, whether you're offensive linemen, tight ends, talking to George Kittle before the game, or all the different guys I saw, Jimmy Garoppolo. I mean, guys just wanted to be on the field. And it was like they couldn't wait for the game to start. And when it started, it started like fireworks. I mean, Drew Brees comes down. I mean, it's perfect execution. The ball didn't hit the ground. Literally on either side on the first two drives that both ended up for touchdowns. And then what happened was I could just see I could just see Kyle Shanahan. And he's seeing what the Saints are doing. They're up 20 to 7. And he's like, I'm not waiting any longer. I'm pulling these plays out. You know, and so the Saints go up 20 to 7. And the next play, they go 75 yards on the first play. Emmanuel mm -hmm. Sanders, they cut that lead to 20 to 14. He dialed up his most explosive play of the day and they executed it perfectly off play action. And, and so it came down like they had one more big play in them to George Kittle on a fourth down and two that, you know, he made a George Kittle type of play and he proves that he's the, the elite tight end in this whole business right now on every level. That the, the 49ers, for them to go into that building, do what they did, forget about the records. That's the best team in the NFC. They can go on the road and play the, the Ravens toe-to-toe -to -toe in a muck. They can go to New Orleans the following week after staying on the East Coast the whole week, and they can knock out the Saints. I mean, that's the best team in football, and they can beat you anyway. But the big thing is, if you get into a track meet, which it was, Kyle Shanahan's ready for that track meet. Like, he's got the plays there designed to go dial up, and he already knows how you're going to react to all of his actions and play actions and pre-snaps to get those plays to work. It, he's, it, it was, you just felt like you're looking at the two best play callers in the NFL go at it in a, with two great quarterbacks. And it was for everybody to enjoy. So when I was watching the game, I kept thinking back to what you said on the last pod, which was that the Niners are growing together. And yeah, they went into Baltimore. They didn't win that game, but that's an experience they had together, right? They lose to Seattle at the last second. Having been in New Orleans, and I, I don't mean to keep repeating that, but I kind of feel like you can't appreciate what it's like to win in New Orleans right. until you've been there for a game, right? So it is easily the toughest place to play in the NFL, in my opinion. I don't care what the records say in terms of who has the best home field. But for the Niners to go in there and win that game, like that's something they'll be able to draw back on for honestly as long as Garoppolo and Shanahan and that core is there, but definitely in the playoffs. So I think the Niners, outside of just the win and it helps their playoff seating and all that, like they took a step forward as a franchise in that win. And I'll also say from Jimmy Garoppolo's standpoint, I think Jimmy is somebody that's easy to pick on. And I'm sure I did it early on in the season on this pod, but he's easy to pick on because his numbers aren't great. Uh, you know, he's not really, he doesn't put up 400 plus yards often, those type of things. But I think that that was a big game for him too, for two reasons. One, to be the quarterback that won that game and not just win it 21 to 17, to win in a shootout, to have game, you know, the game winning field goal drive, to have touchdown drives, those type of things. But I also think it was good for a national audience to really see Jimmy shine and see what he's good at. And as good as Shanahan is, and he is without question. I'm covering a team in Philadelphia right now that I also think is a good head coach. Now, he's not calling at the level Shanahan is. 
but Carson's not able to execute the plays. I don't think Jimmy gets enough credit for just executing Shanahan's plays. Like his ball placement on that fourth and two to Kittle, this I think is a perfect example. It's not a tough throw, right? It's not a, a flashy throw. He didn't run around, but he hits Kittle right in stride, allowing him to turn the corner and go upfield. And that's what you see time and time again with Jimmy Garoppolo is just something as simple as ball placement that allows Shanahan's offense to really work the way it's supposed to. Well, two things here, Elliot. And um, so I talked to John Lynch, the general manager, before the game. And we just talked about how important regular season games are to get mm-hmm. battle-tested for the postseason. And, you know, in the NCAA tournament basketball, they talk about strength of schedule. Strength of schedule is really important. Not because of maybe an inflated record. Players have to feel like they've won big games. That's where confidence comes from. That's how it grows. That's how you unite in big games against good competition. So I can't imagine a game that the 49ers have played this year that would rally that organization like that game did. Mm-hmm. Not just for this year, but for years, like you said. And then Jimmy Garoppolo is an, is an interesting guy. First of all, I don't think the guy has any bad days, Elliot. Like, yeah. you, you can't look like that. You can't get the smile off his face. And, <laughs> like, I know... We like good-looking people in this world, but there are good-looking people that are talented, good-looking people. Like, that guy walks into a room. Like, that guy carries he, – he's got swagger to him. He's a he, franchise quarterback. He's a franchise quarterback. He's a franchise quarterback, but I can't tell you how loose he was. Like, I, I was probably the first person he talked to as he came on the field to warm up and stretch and all this. I can't tell you how relaxed and easy he is to approach whether it was me or a player or anybody else coming up to talk. I mean, he's approachable, he's relaxed, he's confident. And there's a lot to that. There's a lot to it because quarterbacks put get everything put on them. Now, you can either be really tight and you can be really corporate and you can do all those things. And that's, you know, that's being a franchise. And then you can just, I just, I can handle anything that comes at me. Mm-hmm. And, there's and to your last point, Elliot, it's a really good point. Like they're they had nine explosive plays in a game. Nine plays of 20 yards or more. That's a lot. Probably as many as any game this year. But a lot of those plays are because of the ball placement, where Emmanuel Sanders is in full stride, George Kittle's in full full stride. And you can just keep moving. And that's a credit. And it's a function of quarterback play. And you can look at quarterback percentages all you want. It's a bunch of nonsense. What are you doing after the catch? So I've never seen more players fall down, you know, with the Philadelphia Eagles as soon as they catch a ball than they do. I mean, they literally just fall right down, and there's nothing. And you see the 49ers, they're streaking through secondaries, you know, whether it's, you know, Sanders or Kittle or Bourne, whoever it might be. Like, there's a lot of yards to be gained after the catch in that offense. Yeah, and, and I mean, look, I, I think part of the reason, and we can transition to the Eagles because I want to talk about the NFCs, but I do think part of the reason these guys fall down is because, you know, they're reaching out they're reaching out to the left to catch the ball. They're going down low to try to get it. And I think that's something Carson can improve on. But when you talk about MVPs of the league, and I don't know if Garoppolo belongs in that conversation, but it's not very often that the quarterback of a team that's the number one seed in a conference and just won that game isn't even in the discussion. And I think it's a bit of a discredit and kind of 
understates what Jimmy G is able to do out there each week. Like Lamar is the MVP of the league. Don't get me wrong. But, and Russell Wilson's playing great. But I think, you know, Jimmy does sometimes doesn't get the credit he deserves. But in the NFC East, the Eagles, they win a game. I think Carson gets the biggest win of his career. Um, the fact that it comes against a 2-10 and 10 team, you know, it is what it is at this point. That's who they played. But he leads a comeback win there. Uh, game-winning drive in overtime. Had the game-tying drive, obviously, at the end. I think it was a turning point for this team. I've rewatched the game. I know you've watched it. Do you see signs of life with the Eagles? Because I have to be honest, I have more optimism about this team, and it's probably irrational, but I have more optimism about the team than I have all season simply because Carson got his signature win. We got it. I mean, the Giants, I mean, they can't get lined up, Elliot. I mean, they're just defensively, I mean, just poorly coached. I mean, 12 men on the field. Uh, Yeah, I mean, just guys coming on the field as a 12th man. Like, who does that? I mean, I've seen too many men on the field, and the guy's trying to leave. They're bringing the guy on the field. Like I, I've never seen that. Uh, it's just, I mean, the, the, look, Boston Scott gave him a big lift, you know, from the middle of that third quarter when Miles Sanders yep. went out with cramps. I mean, he gave, I mean, he, he actually gave them the role that Sproles was supposed to provide for most of the time that Sproles has been. He looked like Sproles, like that's who he might be. And this team needed a spark in the worst way. And I felt like Boston Scott gave him the spark. I mean, so many different ways, whether it's explosive runs or the screens, like that's they needed that guy badly. And maybe he's going to be a big ingredient down the stretch. But, yes, Carson played better. He played better. I mean, I mean, it's not where he needs to be. There's still a lot of, I think, room for improvement. But I, I, I think you can get confidence pretty quickly in his business. He looked like yep. a lot more confident after the time. I mean, look, you don't cover Zach Ertz in the end zone. You know, like it seems bizarre to me, but but you still he made the throw. I don't want to take anything away from Carson. It was really important to come down, you know, from down 17-3 where it was fans were leaving, they were booing, and they had all the right to leave and to boo. And that muck that they played in, that monsoon they played in. And so that was good. He looked confident after the game. He sounded like that all week long. They need him to not just be that, but they need, you know, and he was great on his quarterback sneak and fourth down conversions. They need all of that. Um, and a lot more. The one thing I'd say about the Eagles, their offensive line is really good. Jason Peters mm-hmm. played really well. Lane went out. Big V came in. He played well. They blocked well up front. They're, for the way that they play, they should be a top 10 offense. Other things have to go right and have to be better. But it's one win. They get the Redskins without you know Darius Geis. I mean, it's a very winnable game down there. Um, and then it all comes down to the showdown with the Dallas Cowboys. And that's what it will come down to. Yeah, I, I think what you said about confidence is just really why I feel it was a turning point. Like, don't get me wrong. It's sad that the biggest win of Carson's career up to this point is against a 2-10 and 10 Giants team where they're losing 17-3. to three. Like, that is a, point, a, a sign of where he's at in his career. But whatever your first big win is, confidence can really change a team quickly. And... I've seen the Eagles win games and come back with a terrible loss. So I don't even think it's a guarantee they beat Washington. But I'm just, from being around the team, being around Carson, it feels like it could have been a turning point. So I have, for maybe the first time this whole season, honestly, some optimism about where this team is going. Before we wrap up, though, I just want to get one more question at you. Cowboys at, I'm sorry, Rams at Cowboys this week. Big game in the NFC East. And I know we're going to talk a lot about that showdown, Eagles-Cowboys next week. 
Cowboys, Rams, who do you like in that game? Well, it's a, you know, it's a repeat of the divisional championship game last year where the Rams really ran the ball down their throats. I like the way the Rams are playing right now. I mean, yeah. they beat Seattle like they did. Um, Jared Goff was very good in the game. The offensive line is growing together. A lot of young players there. Gurley has been very, very involved. They were excellent on third downs. And that's the key down this business. Can you stay on the field? Can you stay on the field and continue to play offensive football and play keep away? And they're just executing now. I mean, I think Sean McVay has figured out how important it is to get the right plays dialed in for Jared Goff. He's not a great freelancer. Um, he's not a guy that can create on his own. Your third down, like, this is where the ball's got to go, either or. Like, you got to kind of simply – I'm not saying he can't handle a lot, but it, he's a much better player if you kind of give him the either or. They've got a great third down player in Cooper Cup, maybe the best in the league. He's got five touchdowns on third downs. He leads the league in third down catches. He's the go-to guy, and he's he doesn't drop a pass. I like the Rams in the game. They're playing better. I know the Cowboys' backs are against the wall. They've had 10 days to get ready. But I don't see any sign that the Cowboys can play consistent football for four quarters. They can run a 17-play, 75-yard drive to start a game, and they really can't do much after that. And that's what happened against uh, Chicago. That's what happened against Buffalo. And I mm -hmm. think that's what's going to continue to happen to this team. Yeah, I think Jason Garrett on 10 days uh, rest is not something that's going to put fear in the uh, Rams. And ultimately, I can't put my confidence behind a team that's going to be firing their head coach in three weeks or whenever they're eliminated. So I think the Rams win this one. I think they're playing their best football of the year. And it's going to set up a big matchup. I mean, the Eagles and Cowboys have not played well this year. But Eagles versus Cowboys for the NFC East title in week 16, it really doesn't get that much bigger than that in terms of games in the NFL. I mean, one of the best rivalries, playoffs on the line. It'll be 4.30. It'll be it'll be dark, you know, uh, by halftime. So I'm real excited for that game. A lot of good ones this week as well, though, Baldy. That'll do it for this weekend, this week's edition of the Prevent Defense Podcast. Baldy, have a good time down there in uh, Green Bay, and I'll talk to you next week. You got it, Elliot. Thanks, man.